Take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We are in this series in which we're talking about God rebuilding a place and reviving a people. Last week we looked at the prayer that Nehemiah prays there in chapter 1. And it's a prayer in which he pours out his heart before God. We talked about how to pray through the ACTS acronym. Um, and we honestly saw a very practical example there of how to pray. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a regular prayer life, or if maybe you find your regular prayer life kind of gets in a rut, you can go to that ACTS acronym and, and let it lead you through prayer. Uh, just by way of reminder, what is the ACTS acronym? Remember, remember the A? Adoration. Adoration. Confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But we didn't only talk about how to pray, we also talked about what to pray. We saw Nehemiah pray a big prayer. It was a prayer in which he honestly didn't know how God was going to work. He's just asking him to work. God, would you please show up in the middle of this circumstance and, and work? One of the things we saw is that Nehemiah is praying the seemingly impossible prayer. The law of the Medes and Persians is a statement that refers to something that cannot be altered and it cannot be changed. So 15 years before this, when King Artaxerxes signed a law into effect saying that the Jerusalem wall could not be rebuilt, he is the king of Persia and he is the ultimate ruler of the earth at that time. And it is, it, this law cannot be changed, it cannot be altered. So in many ways, it seems like Nehemiah is praying that impossible prayer. Um, however, what Nehemiah brings to God in his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 is something that would change this unchangeable law. That's what makes this prayer seemingly impossible. But folks, if there is anything that we know about our God, it is that he specializes in making possible the impossible. He specializes in making possible the impossible. And when we struggle to remember that, it's important for us to remind ourselves of the power and the ability that our God has. You say, well, how do I remind myself of God's power? And, and honestly, you don't really have to look any further than just right around you to be able to see God's power. And here's, here's, a, here's a very big picture example, okay? The sun. I'm talking about the S-U-N, the sun. Uh, the sun, we are told, consumes 600 millions of matter per second, generating enough energy in one second to supply all the United States energy needs for 13 billion years, all right? It is absolutely massive. But who was it that spoke the sun into existence? You can answer me back here. God did, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm 33, 9 says, for he spoke his word came out, the word came out of his mouth and it, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That means that God formed the mountains by his power. He separated the seas by his power. He divided light from darkness by his power. He created man by his power. We know from reading God's word that the source of all power is God. He has saving power, he has pardoning power, he has redeeming power, he has infinite power, he has power over nature, he has life-giving power. In fact, Romans chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that there is no authority or there is no power um, except from God. That means he puts leaders into positions of authority. He has say in who is in authority. 
Genesis chapter 18, verses 13 and 14, the Lord says to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And we know the story there, right? Sarah and Abraham are very, very old, and the Lord tells Abraham um, that Sarah's going to have a child. And she laughs about it. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord to do? Remember, he's the one that spoke the son into existence. You continue on to Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, and the Lord is speaking to Moses. And he says, is the Lord's hand shortened? In other words, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? He continues on talking to Moses, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And if you continue reading there, you're going to find that what the Lord says actually happens. It, it takes place. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Matthew chapter 19, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus is speaking, and, and here's what he says. He says, with man, this is impossible. In other words, it cannot be done with man, but with God, all things are possible. It doesn't really take much of a look at God's power to help us realize that there is really no such thing as an impossible prayer, is there? There is nothing that we can pray that is impossible for God if that prayer is according to his word and according to his promises. And I have to believe that Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter 1 approaches his prayer life knowing that nothing is impossible with God. It sure seems like it's impossible to man, but if God's power is really as great as we read in his word, and there's really no reason to think that it's not because he's proven himself over and over and over again, then why would we not pray impossible prayers? If God really is as strong as his word says it, he is, then why would we not pray impossible prayers? The important thing for Nehemiah to do is not to worry about the size of the prayer, but to simply take action and pray. Let God worry about the size of the prayer, right? Nehemiah's job is to simply kneel into action. We talked about that last week, about how that is, should be our first form of action when God places a burden on our hearts that we are to kneel into action and let him do the work. Let him worry about the size of the prayer. We just be faithful to actually kneel into action. I want to ask you something here. If we truly believed that nothing is impossible with God, and if we had a foundational belief, a foundational theological belief, that God is capable of doing what no man can do, then how would that knowledge affect our prayer life? If we knew that God could do whatever it was that he wanted to do, even down to speaking the Son into existence and and. and uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, upholding the universe by the word of his power. If we truly believe that God could do that, then how would that affect our prayer life? I believe if that was the case, we would not help, we could not help, but approach God with both humility and brokenness. Humility because we are understanding that we are coming before the God of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence. That'll humble you, right? 
but then also brokenness because we understand that there are things about this world that break the heart of God. And because they break the heart of God, they are to break our hearts as well. So that is why we approach our God with humility and with brokenness. Nehemiah's prayer there in chapter 1, we see him approach God in both of these ways, with humility and brokenness. Today, as we work through Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to find God begin to show up and show Nehemiah that his hand and his will is good and that his blessing is on those who are open to whatever it is that he's calling them to do. Okay, so let's go to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, cha- of, uh, uh, yeah, Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to see what happens. Um, as we read through these first nine verses, we're going to pause often and, and, and talk about them. By the way, just by way of reminder, if you go back to chapter 1, look at the very last statement that's made there in chapter 1. Nehemiah says, now I was cupbearer to the king. All right, it helps us understand the context here. Nehemiah is in a place of great honor. He is serving the most powerful man in the world at this time. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, pause. You might remember that um, two weeks ago we talked about the month of Nisan. Nisan is what is for us uh, March into April, mid-March into April. Nehemiah's prayer began way back in Kislev, mid-November through mid-December. That means that Nehemiah has been praying now for four months. This is four months of fasting, four months of pouring his heart out before God. One of the things we see in this is that God prepares the heart of the leader before the first action is taken. God prepares the heart of the leader before the first action is taken. We've all heard stories of of how um, godly leaders are given a burden by God for something, right? And he doesn't allow them to actually begin with it until he has a chance to mature that burden inside of them. The burden has to mature inside the leader. I remember the same thing happening to me in the early stages of being called to pastor this church. When a couple of initial conversations took place, God had yet to fully mature a burden in me for this role and for this church. But after a couple of months of intense prayer, God didn't just give me a desire to pastor this church. He gave me a burning passion to see people come to know Christ through the ministry of this church for our world to be changed and impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of this church. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, then you would have experienced a burden to do something for the Lord. There's a strong chance that there's this time of maturation that takes place before you see the Lord actually doing something about the burden that he's given you. That time of prayer and that time of fasting is important to the completion of whatever it is that God has called us to do. Nehemiah is faithful to pour out his heart before God for four months with no clear direction from God about how this is going to actually play out. Four months of virtual silence from God. Nehemiah's got a burden, but he has no direction on how to follow through with that burden. He probably even got to the point of wondering if God is going to do anything about what he had laid on Nehemiah's heart. Right? Four months is a long time. Grand scheme of things, maybe not so much. But when you've got something you're really wrestling with, four months is a long time. Then all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, God comes through in a really big way. So let's keep reading. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, in other words, when the meal is before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. 
And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, you can imagine the setting here, okay? The king and queen are sitting and they're eating their meal. Nehemiah has served the king, and there's a good chance that everything's quiet because, you know, people like to eat their meal in peace. I don't, know what that, I don't know what that's like. I got four kids at home, under six and under. We never eat a meal in peace. But most people like to eat their meal in peace. And so you can imagine Nehemiah having brought the king his, his meal, and then he steps back to the side to, to just wait and see, is there anything else that this king needs? Okay. And while he's standing there, I can imagine that his, that his mind turns to Jerusalem. He's just standing there waiting, and his mind turns to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the emotion that is in his heart starts to play out on his face. The sadness in his heart comes out on his face. Now, folks, that's a big no-no. If you're a member of the king's court, you don't let any kind of negative emotion show. It could be easily interpreted by, by the king as, as a frustration or a dissatisfaction against him. It could cost you your position. It could cost you even your, your life. Up to this point, Nehemiah has not allowed the true state of his emotions to be known to the king. But now this mask has come off of his face. And the king says this. He says, why is your face sad? Seeing that you're not sick, there's no obvious signs of sickness here. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, folks, there is a gold nugget, okay, for us to pick up here from, from these verses. It would be really, really easy for us in reading this story to miss this point, but this king has just done something remarkable. King Artaxerxes is the most powerful man in all of the known world, yet he takes the time to seek to understand what is hurting a man who has no greater worldly status than the status that he, King Artaxerxes, gives to Nehemiah. He looks at Nehemiah, he sees that he's struggling, and he cares enough about Nehemiah to ask him what's going on. He doesn't look at Nehemiah with contempt. He doesn't look at Nehemiah with condemnation. He looks at Nehemiah with compassion. There is no reason whatsoever to believe that King Artaxerxes is a godly man. None whatsoever. In fact, it's highly likely that he follows the very pagan Persian gods. But this pagan man teaches us a lesson in how we should view and treat other people. It's with compassion that he looks on Nehemiah. It's been said, um, it's been said that oftentimes unbelievers are better at showing compassion than Christians are. And I would honestly believe it. In fact, you ask any person who works in a restaurant on Sundays, and they will tell you that they hate working Sundays because people come in from church to their restaurant and they treat the workers with contempt and they tip poorly. In fact, oftentimes, unbelievers are more prone to show up for the funeral of an acquaintance more than Christians are. Or they're more prone to visit the hospital or the nursing home to visit the hurting. They're more prone oftentimes to do so than Christians. Not all the time, but oftentimes they are. And in fact, if you don't believe me, just ask anyone who works in those professions and they'll tell you the very same thing. King Artaxerxes cared enough about the people around him that he noticed when Nehemiah was not okay. But not only did he notice, he, with compassion, talked with him about it, asked him about it. 
Two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of the fact that there's destruction all around us, and all we have to do is open our eyes to see the destruction around us. Well, King Artaxerxes is not even a godly man. In fact, he's probably a very pagan man, and he did that. How much more should we, as believers who are redeemed by God, how much more should we open our eyes and see the heartache around us and have compassion on people around us? The actions of this pagan king should be a lesson to all of us to seek out in genuine love those who might be hurting all around us. Then you get down to the last phrase that I read there in verse 2, and it says this, Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Then I was very much afraid. How many of you, um, you hear something, and at some point in your life, you've heard something, and you can feel the color just draining from your face, right? You know your your face is turning white. Maybe it's this instant heat that kind of comes up through your body, right? I know I've been there before, okay? I can imagine Nehemiah being in that very, very same position, For Nehemiah to say that he was very much afraid means that he was filled, get this, he was filled with a terrible dread. That's the the literal meaning of the Hebrew word that's used there. It's a terrible dread. You can imagine his life flashing before his eyes. He's having that moment of instant panic. I have just offended the king. But here's what he says to the king, verse 3. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's almost like Nehemiah, knowing that his job and his life is in the hands of the king, is willing to just throw it all out there, put it all on the line, right? Go big or go home. He decides to go big. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Several weeks ago, I was reading uh, this verse. And I came across that statement right there in the middle of the verse, the place of my father's graves. And I thought, well, that's kind of that's weird. Why would, you, why would you say that, right? Not, why not just say Jerusalem? Why not just say, you know, where my forefathers are from? But he said, the place of my father's graves. So I went digging. And here's what I found. The Persians were obsessed with the grave, they didn't have a clear understanding of what happens to the, soul, to the soul of a person once that person died. So they did everything that they could do to figure it out. They would have, have theories that they discussed and they debated. One person would believe one thing, another person would believe something else, but they all agreed that there was something supernatural that happened to a person once they died. We're in agreement with them there, right? They just didn't know what that was. Because of that, because of their, their, their lack of knowledge about whatever supernatural it was that happened, they held the grave up in a place of high honor. In fact, their graveyards were as important to them as their temples for worshiping their false gods. Nehemiah is no fool. When he throws that line in there about the place of his father's graves, he's talking about the place his forefathers were buried, and he's appealing to the spiritual nature of the king to the emotional side of the king. It's a connection that the king would have had and they would have understood. He's telling the king this. He's saying, the place that you hold is holy, right? The graveyard. I've never held a graveyard as holy, have you? No, but they did, right? This place that you hold as, as holy, the graveyard, Jerusalem as a whole, is lying in ruins, and I'm sad because of that. And now, in the span of 10 to 15 seconds, So far, okay, 10 to 15 seconds, what God has been maturing in Nehemiah for four months 
is starting to very practically materialize. Let's continue reading. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. How many of you have ever had those popcorn emergency prayers? Right? Something's happening, and you know that you're not going to get through it. You're not going to be able to deal with it correctly until you just get some help from God. So you throw out, God, help me. I've been there before many times, right? God, just help me. That's what Nehemiah prays here. God has opened a door, and Nehemiah is about to walk through it, but he knows that he can't do so without the help of God. Here's the cool thing with this. That four months of God maturing the vision and the burden in Nehemiah would have given him an opportunity to think about what it was going to take to rebuild those walls. So when the king asked here, he says, what are you requesting? Nehemiah is ready with an answer. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, there's that statement again, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. It's happening. It's happening. What God has been doing in Nehemiah's heart and what needed to be done desperately. The walls needed to be rebuilt. It's happening. The king is looking favorably on what Nehemiah is requesting, and all of a sudden, what seemed like it was impossible is taking place. God has shown up. The power of God that we talked about earlier is coming through. In fact, it's not just that it's happening. We read there, it pleases the king to do so. It pleases the king. Nehemiah is kind of on a roll here in what he's asking. So he asked for a little bit more, all right? Verse 7, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the, sit, of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a couple of things for us to pull out from this. The first one is that Nehemiah knew what kind of obstacles he was going to face in going to Jerusalem to do this job. He knew that he was going to need materials. He knew that he was going to need favor with some of the leaders of the area. He knew that there was timber that was going to be needed, and he even knew the name of the person to talk to. King, would you write a letter to this person? He was ready with an answer. He's in front of the leader of the known world. He knew that this man had the resources available to get this job done. So Nehemiah boldly asked for what's needed. And that... that, As I was thinking about that this week, it brought up the the reminder to me that as a Christian, I have the chance to, at any time, go before the God of the universe, the real leader of the known world, and ask him for what's necessary to complete the vision that he has given me. King Artaxerxes had the ability to give what Nehemiah needed We read there in verse 8, he did so. He seemed like he was happy to do so. Then the last line there in verse 8 says this, For the good hand of my God was upon me. Now this brings up a really good question. Um, Nehemiah is writing this, okay? Nehemiah is the one that says there, For the good hand of my God is upon me. But was God good because he has now worked a miracle for Nehemiah? 
Was Nehemiah saying that God is only good because he showed up and he worked things out when it seemed like it was impossible? No. God was a good God way before he did these things. In fact, in chapter 1, if you go back and look in Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah tells God that he is great. He is awesome. Nehemiah knew and he had tasted and seen that the Lord is good way before this miraculous working of, of God. God's goodness I want you to hear me on this. God's goodness doesn't depend on our perception of that goodness. God's goodness doesn't depend on our perception of that goodness. He simply is good. He is a good God. Sometimes that goodness is more evident to us than at other times, right? Sometimes we see it and, and we know that is the goodness of God at work. And it's not like the other times God is not good because he is always good, but sometimes it's more evident to us than at other times. He is always good to give us what is needed to complete his vision. He gives us a burden. He's going to say, you know what? You've got obstacles in front of you, but he's going to provide where he gives a burden. We see that with Nehemiah right here. Nehemiah knew how great this thing was that was in front of him, and he's going, you know what? I don't know how this is going to happen. But God, if it's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. And I love it because God comes through for him. God shows once again that he is good. And here, if you continue reading here, God's not just in the business of only doing what we ask him to do. Nehemiah had some things that he asked God to do there, but he's also in the business of exceeding expectations. So look at verse 9, and you'll see this. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Now wait a minute here. I never heard Nehemiah ask for a military escort for his trip to Jerusalem. Did you? No? We never heard him ask that. But yet here it is. The king has given Nehemiah more than he even asked for. Folks, God specializes in giving us not just what we ask for, but things we don't even know we need. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed you to Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we find a couple of verses where we see that God gives us not only what we need or not only what we ask for, but he exceeds our expectations. Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll start reading verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you were to read that verse in the New King James Version of the Bible, you would read this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Folks, he has the power to do what we can't even dream up or even think up. As we work through this passage, we've seen the manifest power of God at work in Nehemiah. And because we believe that our God never changes, that he is always good, and that he always, his hand is always good, and because we believe that he still has a good plan for his glory, we can be assured that his power is still at work among us today. No less than it was back there with Nehemiah. 
The question is not if God wants to use us. The question is not if God has called us. The question is not if God has given us something to do. The question is only where and how. How do we follow through with that that He has given us? And He wants to do more than we can ever even imagine. This morning I want to leave you with three questions to take home and reflect on, okay? So three reflection questions. You want to write these things down, take them, and maybe sometime today you look over these questions. Maybe it's tomorrow for your quiet time. You do so. But here's three questions for reflection. The first one is, do I know that God is good? Do I know that God is good? Now, the easy answer is, yes, I know God is good, right? It says in His Word that God is good. We talk about the fact that God is good. But this question goes a lot deeper than, than, than just that. And we cannot view it as a surface-level question. Do you have a foundational belief that God is working all things for the good of those who love Him, who walk according to His commandments? Do you have a foundational belief that that is true? I believe that Nehemiah had such a strong understanding of God and his goodness that it was easy for him to recognize when God was at work. That when he didn't truly understand what God was doing, he leaned back and he rested in the fact that my God is a good God and I can trust him. When we know that God is good, when we know that he works all things out for the good of those who love him and who walk according to his commandments, then it makes it a little bit easier for us to, to trust him when he takes us on a step of faith, right? As you reflect on that question, here's a passage of Scripture that you should probably write down to, to think about. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. All right, so write that down next to that question. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. We're not going to go there right now, but that's a great passage for you to go to and see what Jesus had to say about the goodness of God. Question number two, what's my response going to be if the good hand of God is not immediately evident? What's my response going to be if the goodness of God, the good hand of God is not immediately evident? Nehemiah prayed and fasted for four months before he saw God actually doing something about the burden that he had given him. There is something that is on the heart of God that he wants Nehemiah to do. God wants to rebuild a place and revive a people. But what would have happened if Nehemiah had thrown in the towel after just three months? What would have happened if Nehemiah had quit? He can't see God at work yet. God, I don't understand what you're doing here. You gave me this burden, but, but you're not doing anything about it. We're three months into this thing. I'm just going to quit. What would have happened? Well, I, I believe that God would have still carried through with what he wanted done. But I also believe that Nehemiah would have missed out on the blessings of being involved in what God was doing. Sometimes we quit too early. Sometimes we got something that's a burden on our heart and, and we, we, we quit praying about it. We, can't, we, we quit asking God, God, would you do this? Last week, some of you came forward and, and many of you sat in your seats and you were praying, God, we've got something that's impossible in front of us. I've got something that's impossible in front of me, you said. God, would you do something here? But it's all too often easy for us to quit praying about it because we don't see God working. 
What would have happened if Nehemiah had quit? And what's my response going to be if I don't see God working right away? But then the third question, do I believe that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? Do I believe? When you believe something, you, you internalize it. It, it, it comes down to the core of who you are. You truly know this. Do I believe that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? If I had to be honest with you, there are times that I am filled with doubt. There are times that I am filled with discouragement. This past Wednesday night, we had the opportunity as a church to come together in a, in a member meeting and to to vote to move forward as a church with the next step that, that we believe God's leading us on, to find out more information about how to move forward well. It was a great time of us being together, a great time of unity. I left encouraged. But then late Wednesday night happened, and Thursday happened, Friday morning happened, where there was deep discouragement. And it was nothing but an attack from Satan. That's it. That's all it was. But I had to remind myself that God has proven himself over and over again. And when I remember that he's not doing anything that's out of the ordinary for him, right? It's not out of the ordinary for God to show up and show off. He specializes in doing that. Then I take heart when I remember that and I'm strengthened. I want to go back to the end of verse 8 there in Nehemiah chapter 2 to help us close out. For the good hand of my God was upon me, Nehemiah said. The good hand of my God was upon me. Folks, as I think about that statement, I can't help but think of the salvation that God has offered me. The salvation that he's offered you through the sending of his son, Jesus. Nehemiah saw the goodness of God in his own unique way. We have seen the goodness of God through the way that he has redeemed us through the sending of Jesus. There is nothing greater than that. And there's no greater way to see the goodness of God than in the redemption that he has offered us. Church, listen, never ever forget that God has a plan and that you are a part of that plan. Never move from being in the center of that plan. And never forget that at God's core, he is good. Would you bow your heads so we, can close, so we can pray together? Our Father, we come to you and, and I thank you for what we see here in Nehemiah. Father, there was this impossible thing in front of him, impossible project, but it was a burden that you put on his heart. Something had to be done. Father, he comes to you. He pours out his heart before you. He doesn't quit praying he doesn't quit. He doesn't, he doesn't squelch the burden inside of him for Jerusalem. And Father, it seems like randomly one day you show up and you start working. And all of a sudden he is on a course, he is on a trajectory that will change his life, the lives of countless others. Father, you will through him rebuild a place and you will revive a people. Father, those impossible things in front of us May we never, ever lose the burden that you've placed on us to do something about those. Father, may we continue to seek your face, to ask you to show up and work as only you can. 
And then, Father, would you work as only you can? And we look forward to being able to glorify and praise you for what you've done. Father, would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? May discouragement never be a part of the picture. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.